Well, there are many quotes that have been attributed to Mark Twain. I'm not sure if most of them are from him or not, but uh, they all have one thing in common. They're all pretty witty, and they sound like something that Mark Twain would say. So I'm going to share one with you this morning. I have no idea if he actually said it, but it still serves a purpose. There was a story uh, that, that Twain was once lecturing in Utah, and a Mormon uh, acquaintance argued with him on the subject of polygamy. And after a long and heated debate, the Mormon finally said this, can you find me a single passage of scripture that forbids polygamy? Twain said, certainly. No man can serve two masters. <laughs> it may take a minute or two for you to, to get that, and you may get it on the drive home, I don't know. All kidding aside, though, the, the passage that we just read from the Apostle Paul uh, talks about whether we can serve two masters, uh, whether we can be devoted fully to God and still do things that belong to the realm of evil and demonic powers. This echoes, if you don't remember, what Jesus said in Matthew 6. I want to read this to you, verses 19 through 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money, but the truth is we can substitute money in that passage for anything else. You cannot serve God and fame. You cannot serve God and power. You cannot serve God and anything else. Nothing else can have your devotion but God and God alone. Why? We just can't serve two masters. You'll follow one and you'll grow to hate the other. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln uh, was running uh, for the Senate in Illinois. And in uh, his, his debates or in his one, a speech that he had made uh, in his race that he ultimately lost, um, he made a speech and he says this. He, he says that a nation can't survive when half of the country is slave and half of the country is free. And he says this, and you've heard this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He crafted his words from what he read in Scripture. You cannot have two opposite and competing ideas. They can't both win. You won't be unified or healthy. Your devotion to one will take over the other and leave it behind. And just a few short years later, Lincoln's words rung true, didn't they? A nation was at war against itself. Well, our passage today from 1 Corinthians 10 is similar to this truth. You cannot have divided loyalty. Only Paul talks about our loyalty to God. It goes beyond our loyalty to our nation or even to our spouse. 
You cannot divide your loyalty that belongs only to God. Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, is full of corrections. This, this church is young and they're making a, a bunch of errors. They're, they're not behaving correctly. They're not believing correctly. And so Paul is writing to try to correct these errors. But this one, this idea of food that has been offered to idols, this is the one that keeps coming up over the last few chapters. It, it's not going away. Paul is trying to hammer home the importance of this. These people have been saved. Uh, they've been brought to new life. They've been given new eyes and a new way to view the world. And at the same time, they're still clinging to their old life. They're clinging to their pagan lifestyle. They're holding on to their previous life, the one that God rescued them out of, and they're still holding on to it. And the truth is, we often do the same thing. If you were saved as an adult, you know how difficult it is to let go of everything that's behind you. It's not easy. That may mean friends or even family. It certainly means habits and way of living. It, it certainly means that you have a new perspective on life. And Paul's saying this. He says, you've been given all of these things. You've been made new. But yet you keep clinging to the stuff that's killing you. They enjoyed the fact that they had been saved and forgiven, but they also enjoyed their previous life. They're being stretched. And you know that if you get a rubber band and you start pulling on it, it will stretch, but at some point, that thing's going to break. You've seen tug of war, right? At some point, at some point, one team is going to beat the other team and the rope is going to swing in their direction. And in the Christian life, there's, there's not a sense of balance when you have two masters. You can't do that. These words are from Paul as a reminder that we cannot have two masters. Now, as we dive into this text today, I want you to see two things. First, some parts of the New Testament are difficult. That There are passages in Scripture and, and even entire books of, of the New Testament that are very difficult to understand, difficult to interpret especially when you don't have a grasp of the Old Testament. So much of what's written in the New Testament is specifically not only lifted, but based on stuff that's written in the Old Testament. So if you don't have an understanding of how God worked uh, in the Old Testament, it's going to make the New Testament seem a little distant and difficult. It's important to see this framework of Scripture, this one story that has Jesus as, as the center. It's a cohesive story that works together, and Jesus is at the center of all of it. This passage you'll see Paul reference in the Old Testament. Talk about the Old Testament sacrifices. The second thing to understand, and this is from the text today, and this is, um, as a pastor, this sticks out to me. Paul loves these people. Paul has a deep, embedded love in his heart for these people. He, he's seen them come to know Christ. He's seen them risen up in their faith. He's trained their leaders. He's, he's discipled so many of these people. He loves them. He's devoted his ministry and his life to these people. You see this in, in uh, the first couple words that he says. He says, my beloved in spite of all the problems that they've caused Paul, and they've caused him plenty, he still loves them. 
He's committed to being their shepherd or one of their shepherds, even though that they are, in essence, dumb sheep who think that they know more than they actually do. They're sheep. We're called sheep for a reason. We're, we're the, the sheep of Christ. We're, we're called that for a reason because often sheep kind of do their own thing. They don't quite listen very well. And neither do we. We, we know the truth, and yet we keep doing the, the thing that's opposite of that. The Apostle Paul said he does the same thing. I, I know the truth, I know what's sin, and yet I keep doing it anyway. That sounds like sheep. We have a shepherd in Christ, and the under-shepherd to these people, Paul is one of them. He's encouraged them throughout this time. He, he's, he's told them to run the race till the end. He said to, to learn from Israel's history. And so why does he say these things? Because like sheep, we don't learn from our mistakes very well. As a loving shepherd, he has encouraged them to see the error of their ways. And he does it directly. In chapter 6, he says, flee from sexual immorality. The church was a mess. It was defined by their sin. People outside of the church knew the problems that were happening inside of the body. And Paul says, you guys are going back to your sexual sins. You guys have not been changed, or at least you're not acting like you've been changed by the power of Christ. Flee from that. Run from that. And now Paul moves on basically all the way from chapter 9 all the way up through chapter 10 to the issue of idolatry. So what is the idolatry that he sees happening? The people were eating food sacrificed to idols in the temple of idols. Now you probably should be thinking now, well, wait, wait. Paul dealt with this in chapter 8. He, he encouraged the people to refrain from eating that because it may make weaker brothers or sisters stumble. And he says, you know, if, if eating that meat or eating that food causes a brother to stumble, I won't do it. He was talking to individual believers at that point. He said he would willingly sacrifice anything if it meant someone else would be blessed. Now, as we unfold this, if you're saying, well, that contradicts what we're seeing in chapter 10, stick with me. It doesn't. Paul just expands on that and kind of goes even deeper in this passage into that idea that he first unfolds in chapter 8. So the first thing that we see in our text today is that idolatry is dangerous. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So what comes to mind when you think about idolatry? For, for, for most of us, what, what comes to mind is someone bowing down to something carved. You've seen this. You, you've seen this in, in movies and everything where you see this carved statue and someone's bowing down to the statue and doing some religious rituals. And, and that may be true. That, that, that may have some validity to it. But the truth is that anything or anyone that causes you to decrease your loyalty to God and increase your loyalty to them is idolatry. Anything that takes God in your own heart off of the place that he deserves and demands and puts anything else in its place is idolatry. Just Friday, my dad called me. Uh, he lives in Virginia, and he was telling me, he said, hey, do you remember this park? And I said, yeah, I remember where that is. And he said, um, I was just driving by it, and that parking lot was packed. I've never seen that before. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I pulled in and, and, I, and I saw uh, a, just cars everywhere and there was all sorts of activity on the ball fields and this was at one o'clock in the afternoon. And, 
And I said, okay, well, what's, what'd you see? He said, yeah, I stopped and I asked some guys and they said it's a travel softball tournament. And so multiple fields have games all at once. And he said, yeah, and I saw these girls and, and they were wearing uniforms. They were warming up on the side and their uniforms were already dirty. Uh, so they must have already played a game. I said, yeah, those often they play two or three games in a day. And as our story progressed, uh, we started talking about how so often sports becomes an idol in our lives. That, that you see it. You drive past a ball field on a Saturday and a Sunday, you see really that's their church for a lot of people is that sports and their kids' sports has become a, a, an idol. It's the most important thing for some families. They, they're gone every weekend. They, they play sports every weekend. That's the, the scheduling. Thousands of dollars are put into the sport. Now, I say all of that as someone who coached two teams at one time, who had kids playing different sports at the same time. But we had to be careful, and maybe we overstepped that line, but we had to be careful to say, look, we're not doing sports when there's church going on. We're not doing sports on Sunday morning. That church is what our life revolves around, and that's what we're going to take precedence in our family. But as a student pastor for for six years and a student worker for four years before that, what I saw is, is that sports tended to be elevated above their relationship with God. The discipleship of the kids was traded in for four hours at a ballpark. But the truth is, it's not just sports. Everyone worships someone or something. Even the atheist at the root of what the atheist believes is worship. They, they worship their own logic. They worship their own thinking. Every one of us worships someone or something. And so the question then comes is, can Christians worship anyone but God? We shouldn't. But we know in our hearts, our little idol factories, we know that we have a tendency to take God off of the, his throne in our own hearts and place other things in its place. Sometimes we do this with worship. You say, wait, wait, worship? Worshiping in the wrong way is idolatry. Trends and man-centered ways to, to grow churches numerically are based around a desire to grow one's influence. Every bit of the gathering is analyzed, professionalized. I, I know churches that will not have people on the stage unless they're very attractive. I know people who will hire musicians from cover bands in bars who aren't even believers to play on Sunday morning because that's what good professional musicians do. They sacrifice the fact that we are worshiping instead and they trade it in for a performance. That's not worship, that's idolatry. Has God not given us a standard to follow in worship? He has. Has God not told us in his word how we are to worship him? He has. And to go against that is a form of idolatry and it happens all the time. But there are other forms of idolatry. Some Christians are, are guilty of worshiping images of God. Some value religious experiences above all else. Others pray to dead men and women, filtering their worship through people who could do nothing for them. Paul writes in Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
God has made it clear that no one or no thing deserves our worship but him. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians to flee. It's not just, hey, casually leave. No, it's flee, it's run, it's turn around, don't look back, and run as fast as you can away from this. Even the appearance of this. So the question is, why is this such a big deal? A common way to live for many people today, especially those outside of the Christian faith, unfortunately some inside the Christian faith, but outside of the Christian faith, a popular way to live is to kind of grab bag different aspects of different religions. So they say, okay, well, this in Christianity is good for me, so I'll, I'll take this aspect. This over here in Buddhism, ah, that, that seems to work, so I'll do that. This aspect of Hinduism, I'll, I'll take that. Whatever else I like from all the other religions, I can kind of morph this into my own personal spirituality. If it gives me fulfillment, if it gives me peace, if I'm happy, then that's what matters most. Maybe you've not talked to anybody this way, but maybe you've heard someone say this. They say, well, my truth. Someone says, well, it's time for you to share your truth. As if truth is relative to each one of us. So whose truth wins out when my truth wants to punch your truth in the face? Someone's truth is going to win, right? There's truth in that. I've had many conversations with people who get angry with me when I say that you cannot neutralize or Christianize aspects of other religions. God has given us a standard by which we are to live. We are to flee from anything that does not give God the glory. And this is my second point. Idolatry is inconsistent. Look at verses 16 through 18. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altars? Paul is saying that eating in the temples of idols is idolatry, even if you're not bowing down and making worshiping pose. Here's the case he's making. He starts with communion. Now follow with me. This is a little complicated, but he begins by talking about communion. In verses 16 and 17, he says that Christians participate in the benefits that Christ has gained for them, and they share the blessings communally. So when we come to the Lord's table, it's serious business. Communion is what God has given to the church to remember what Christ has done, to examine our hearts, but another aspect that we often forget, it's a way that we can unify together. Communion brings us together. There is a, a cup of blessing which represents the blood and the, the loaf is the bread. And the church is a rich, diverse place, and we come together to serve a higher purpose. And Paul addresses this elsewhere, but this certainly includes differences between people. And Paul has talked specifically about the rich and the poor. That, that at the Lord's table, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how much influence you have, we all come together and we feast at the same time. Despite all of those differences, we are one body. Every Christian feeds off the same source. And Paul is reminding us of the solidarity in the eating and drinking. One faction cannot split off and do their own thing while the rest of the body waits for them. That cannot happen. In a few weeks, we'll talk more about communion, but I want to show you this. Outside of extreme circumstances, communion belongs to the gathered 
assembly. Communion belongs to the gathered church outside of extreme circumstances when you think of nursing homes or when you think of shut-ins. But outside of that, it belongs in the gathered assembly, the gathered church. Paul says five times in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, meaning that we take the table together. It's not intended to be done outside of that. So what does this mean? No one in the church lives for themselves. You don't and I don't. We belong to Christ, but we also belong to each other. No one lives for themselves. Approaching the Lord's table without first assembling every member together to partake shows that we don't value one another. When we come to the Lord's table, we participate in fellowship with Jesus. Now, I think we all get that. But we often miss the connection that we have with each other. It's more than just a religious exercise. It's a God-given way that the church visually sees and physically experiences spiritual unity. Now, I'm saying all that because Paul's building his case. He says, first, look at communion. In verses 19 to 21, he ties us all together, but he talks about communion. He says that we are all beneficiaries at the same time from the same table, right? So we're drinking and eating at the same time. We all benefit from that. Then he talks about the Old Testament. He says this in verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? The same principle of communion applies here. Those who eat of the sacrificial food participated in the benefits of what was sacrificed at the altar. So when the priest would take the sacrificed or offered food, he would eat the food and then often the others who were in there would eat as well. They all benefited from what was offered in the temple. So when we take communion, we all benefit from communion. In the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice food to idols, they would all benefit from that. Or sacrifice to God, they would all benefit from that. Now this is the foundation that Paul has laid. This would have been a difficult passage even for the Corinthians. How do I know this? Look at verse 19. He says, what do I imply then? So he knows in his writing, he's writing to these people who get the cultural concepts that maybe we don't. And he writes, well, so what am I implying? He knew that they wouldn't understand fully. He knows that it's complex. So most of you are asking the same question. Where is Paul going with this right now? Look at verses 19 through 21. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul anticipates what the Corinthians would say. If Christians are blessed by communion and that the, the, the Old Testament saints were blessed by the uh, food in the Old Testament, is Paul saying that eating food offered to idols gives them similar effect? Yeah, this is what Paul is talking about. Coming to the Lord's table and eating of the Old Testament sacrifices benefited everyone. There was no way to just eat the food. You cannot come to the table on Sunday morning when we take communion for a snack. It's not what it's intended for. But suppose this. Suppose that on a communion Sunday we had someone coming in and, and that person decided who's not a believer, not a member of our church, just someone from a different religion came in on Sunday and decided, you know what, I, I skipped breakfast today so I'm, I'm going to take a few extra cups off the table. 
And so during service, he's just munching, drinking, and he's eating to his family. And afterwards, he's got a pile of, of, of those, those really difficult cups to open. He's, got, he's surrounded by those and is just kind of building and building and building. Um, I think we would all rightly be offended at that. We may say, hopefully he, know, he doesn't know any better. Hopefully he's just in here and just making a common mistake. But, but if he knows what communion really means to us and what it means to believers, that's really offensive that he would have that much disrespect to come in here and do that during our church service. It's not a snack time. Why would we feel that way? Because someone cannot take part of the Lord's table when his allegiances are to another religion. And in verse 20, Paul says that what pagans eat, what they're actually eating is food that's been offered to demons. He says that idols don't exist, but demons sure do. When a Christian would eat this food, they could say, well, wait, wait a minute, Paul. I've got Christian liberty. I've got freedom. Freedom in Christ, that I'm no longer under law. I don't have to pay attention to those things. And Paul's dealt with that attitude already. But what Paul says here is not only are you disrespecting the fellow believer, you've just exposed yourself to demonic influence. Verse 20 is the conclusion to his argument. He says that idols don't exist, so food offered to them is fine, but demons are at work where they're idols. In other words, the food sacrificed to idols are offered to demons. There's never a God behind an idol, but there sure are demons. God has not allowed us, his people, to have divided loyalty. He demands and deserves our allegiance, and that includes those areas where some of us can flaunt at as Christian liberty. Think back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Israelites in the wilderness stirred up God's jealousy and his anger because they were going after worthless idols. God's anger is shown to those who claim to follow him, but then run off their own direction in ways that God has said don't do shows that they ultimately value those things more than they value God. So what Paul is saying is that if believers eat in the temple of idols, they participate in what is offered to demons and expose themselves to demonic powers. For Paul, this is idolatry. He says communion, everybody benefits from taking communion. The Old Testament sacrifices, everybody benefits from that. So then if you go into an idol, if you go into a pagan temple and you partake in the food, all of that is benefiting you as well, just not in a good way. You're getting the benefits of all of those pagan practices are now given to you. In other words, you are now influenced by demons. He says, I don't want you to do that. Paul says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. I'd venture to say that most of us in here have never encountered a demon. I don't want to. Um, most of us have never had demons speak to us. I don't want to hear that either. Um, but, and most of us, the idea of, of demons would be guys in black robes with skull masks with horns poking out and walking around a burning pen uh, pentagram in the woods. I mean, that's kind of the idea of demonic activity that we get. Now, that's an extreme. Most of us are never going to experience that. And, and most of us are never going to eat in a pagan temple. I wouldn't even know where a pagan temple is today. It's more of those smaller things that seep into the way that we live and the way that we worship. We have a tendency to incorporate other aspects of other religions into our Christian faith. 
We take practices and rituals from Hinduism and Buddhism because they seem to help us in some way, but all that we're doing is opening doors up for demonic activity to come raging in. Some of you may be thinking, Ryan, you're, man, you're making a big deal about this. A believer cannot have any relationship with demonic powers and still be faithful to the Lord. A believer cannot have any relationship with these evil powers and come away unscathed. Paul does not simply imply that eating food is permissible if one eats with the right motives or has the right knowledge. He says this. He says, it is objectively wrong. It's not just unwise. It's not just harming other believers. It is wrong. Eating the food to offers, uh, offered to idols is not just a matter of Christian liberty. He says that it's joining with demonic powers. Now, some may say, well, man, that's overkill. Never seen a demon. A lot of the stuff that people talk about demonic activity, we can chalk it up to, to, to drugs or, or mental, uh, um, mental issues or whatever it may be, that, 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 that this is all just kind of overblown. Some may say, well, you know what? I am strong enough in my faith. I'm mature enough in my faith to incorporate all of these other things into my life, and, and I can do that, and I know better. I know myself well enough. Paul says there's no compromise. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. Second John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we shouldn't associate with people who've been given into their sin. We abstain from every form of evil. Why? Because it goes against what God has said about himself and what he expects of his people. Finally, we see in verse 22 that idolatry is offensive. It says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And there are words in the Bible that just stick out to me. That his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. That, that's one, but this one is another one. Are we stronger than he? Maybe we should put that on top of our mirror in our house. Are we stronger than God? Are, are, are we stronger than the powerful creator of the universe? Deuteronomy 32, 21 says this. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. If believers sit at two tables, the table of the Lord and the table of pagans, they arouse God's anger. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, they cannot challenge the Lord and win. Our loyalty belongs only to God, and we cannot have divided affections. We cannot have God and a mixture of anything else. Jeremiah 25, God says this, Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. But the people that Jeremiah was speaking to did not listen. Judah went after other gods, and then God said this to them, 
Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. This is a promise that God made thousands of years ago, but it's the same destruction that God promises to all of those who reject Christ. Revelation 21, 8, John says this, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Paul asked the Corinthians, are we not stronger than God? This question must be answered by Christian and non-Christian alike. Especially for those of us in the West who value our independence, that we value our independent thinking and our choices and all of those things, this idea takes some getting used to. That I can make it work for myself. But the truth is, it's only when we realize that we are weak and that we are not good enough to do the things that God deserves that we can finally have a right relationship with him. This is the gospel message. For the person who's not a Christian, these words from John are unfortunately your future. I take no joy in saying that because I do not want anyone to suffer this. I do not want anyone to suffer the wrath of God forever. I want everyone that I encounter to know the love and mercy and grace that's only found through Christ. I want people to know that. I want people to hear it. I want them to come to know Christ through repentance and faith. But the wages of sin is death. And it's a death that none of us can escape, that none of us can work our way out of. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We all deserve the penalty, but God, being rich in mercy, gave us life, hope, and a future. He provided the only way for us to be made right with him, to be reconciled to him. In the Old Testament, sacrifices had to be made. They were bloody but it was necessary. The people needed to have a form of a mediator to, to take the place of their sin so the, 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 the punishment would then be brought upon this spotless animal. Something that would stand between them and God's anger and God's wrath against sin. The mediator had to pay the penalty that the people deserved, but those were only types and shadows of the mediator that would come because we have only one mediator between God and man. The father sent his son to live here, to live a perfectly righteous life, to die for us so that he would be the last sacrifice that we would ever need, standing in that gap to prevent us from suffering the wrath of God and from benefiting from all the works that Christ has done for us. If you're not a Christian, I want you to let that sink in for a minute. You have a debt to God that you owe and that you can never pay yourself. In fact, not only do you owe a God a debt, you're in the same situation as the idolaters. It's all sin against God, and that sin must be dealt with. That sin must be taken care of. Jesus died so that you could be made a son or a daughter of God. If you haven't turned from your sin and turned to Christ through repentance and faith, do it now. 
There is nothing more important in your life than this very moment. We will stay here as long as you need. Do not leave these doors today if you are questioning your faith, if you're wondering, man, if I were to die today, I don't know what would happen to me. Do not leave today. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. We'll stand here as long as you want. But the truth is that this promise that we're finding, the the idolatry, the punishment for idolatry is the punishment that I deserve to. And it is only through the grace of God that I don't receive what I deserve. And God promises to everyone who will call his name and believe and trust in Christ for their salvation. That promise is also guaranteed to you too. Let's pray.